All right. You will want to get out your uh, Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in verses 1 through 7 today. All right. This is God's word, so uh, as always, uh, please listen carefully. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is one of those passages that preachers wish wasn't there. So we should probably pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us once again to the book of 1 Peter to learn more about Christ and how Christ wants us to live. Lord, in your son Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit. Grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. These are words about honoring one another and we need to hear them. They are hard words, but they're also good words, so open our eyes to believe and obey them. As always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us to consider what it means to embrace honor as it is found in you and in your relationship with your bride, the church. So we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Peter this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. It has been said that a wedding is one thing, but a marriage is another. In his book, uh, Secrets to Inner Beauty, uh, Pastor Joe Aldrich humorously describes the realities of married life. I think he was the one who coined uh, the phrase that there are three rings to a marriage. There's the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. So he says it doesn't take long for newlyweds to discover that everything in one person, nobody's got. They soon learn that a marriage license is actually just a learner's permit. There's an old Arab proverb that states that marriage begins with a prince kissing an angel, ends with a bald guy looking across the table at a fat lady. The famous philosopher Socrates told his students, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, twice blessed you will be. If you get a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. 
For two people to live together in domestic harmony takes a lot of give and take. And so it is that a wedding is one thing and a marriage is another. I tend to be a pragmatic realist. Joanne and I have been married 40 years now. And they have been years of learning and growing, years of difficulty and distress, years of delight and discovery, years of heartache and hardship, years of having children, five pretty good kids most of the time, and losing children through two miscarriages. And now we have years of grandchildren who bring their own delight and heartbreak. And there were years of growing closer together and some days in which it seemed like we were growing farther apart. However, as I look back at it all, I can't imagine doing anything else. Our good memories are still fresh and the bad memories fade with time. And we both say old love is better. And we cling to each other far more than ever before. But marriages in modern America are a far cry from marriages back in the first century when the Apostle Peter wrote this. It was an age of arranged marriages. You didn't get to pick your mate, usually your parents chose for you. And actually most of the world today still operates that way. In his book, I Was Just Wondering, the writer Philip Yancey says, in the US and other Western style cultures, People tend to marry because they're attracted to another's appealing qualities, a fresh smile, wittiness, a pleasing figure, athletic ability, a cheerful disposition, charm. Over time, these qualities can change. The physical attributes especially will deteriorate with age. Meanwhile, surprises may surface. Poor housekeeping, tendencies towards depression and workaholism, disagreements over sex and money. In contrast, the partners in arranged marriage, and about half of all marriages in the world fit this description, do not center their relationship on mutual attractions. Having heard your parents' decision, you accept that you will live for many years with someone you barely know. And the overriding question changes from whom shall I marry to, given this partner, what kind of marriage can we build? Truthfully though, that is the kind of attitude we need if we're going to build strong and lasting marriages. And here in 1 Peter chapter 3, we find some common sense principles for building strong marriages. Now, let me say before we uh, continue with this passage, as I said, this is one of those scriptures that preachers would never choose to preach from. If we didn't just preach straight through books of the Bible, this would never get preached. It's one of those passages that receives a lot of ridicule, is explained away by saying it only applied to the first century, but that's not the case. This is still God's word, and we're not given the option of ignoring it. And so the real issue for us is not to read 21st century political correctness into a document that supersedes time and could care less about being politically correct, but is very concerned with truth and how it applies to our lives as individuals and as a church. In fact, the biggest question I had when starting this sermon was, why didn't I assign this to Frank? <laughs> that being said, 
Let's listen to these controversial words of the Apostle Peter. He has six verses for wives and one for husbands. Now, I initially thought that had to do with men's and women's uh, capacity to understand a lot of information. You know, you have to keep it simple for guys. That's not really the case here. Um, here you do have to consider the first century situation. Wives generally had to follow their husbands. So if the husband became a follower of Christ and went to church, he brought his family along, no questions asked. But if the wife became a follower of Christ, not the husband, she was in a much more difficult position. She didn't have the cultural authority to make her husband come with her. And often she may have been forbidden to go uh, by herself to worship God. So it put her in a very difficult position. Now, if you're not a believer, you may find yourselves really objecting to the teaching of 1 Peter 3, at least as it appears on the surface. But one of the things that's important for us not to miss as contemporary readers, uh, and being contemporary readers often leads us to misunderstanding Peter, the thing we're not to miss is actually how subversive Peter's teaching here really is. In the ancient world, there were a number of ethical codes of conduct which would speak to husbands and wives and servants and citizens and how they should relate to each other. And they're called household codes. And they're largely written by pagan philosophers and ethicists. And what's unique about the New Testament household, household codes like the one before us in 1 Peter, is the New Testament speaks to slaves and wives and children. It doesn't just speak about them. In the pagan codes, they were all addressed typically to the head of the household because wives and slaves and children were not generally considered to have the same moral agency and ability to weigh matters for themselves that the man was. And so the man would be addressed about the others. But the others would not be addressed directly themselves. And that is not Peter's perspective or the perspective of the New Testament at all. The New Testament addresses men and women, wives and husbands, children and slaves as fully human, fully responsible, individual, moral actors in their own right which seems to us self-evident and obvious. But at the time, it would have been rather shocking and a startling approach indeed. And then the subversion continues. I want you to notice one word used twice. The word is likewise. You see it at the beginning of verse one and the beginning of verse seven. This is important. So you need to look at see the word likewise in verses one and seven, because it's referring us back to what Peter has already said when he addressed slaves in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25, which we blew through very quickly last week. But there he said to the slaves, here's how I want you to conduct yourselves if you find yourself in a situation where you have an earthly master who's an unbeliever, and now that you're a follower of Jesus, you are suffering unjustly for your faith. And then having applied the gospel to slaves in the context of unjust suffering, he says, likewise, wives, 
and likewise husbands. You see what Peter has done here? It's pretty radical. He has made the slave the paradigm. He has made the slave the model of faithful suffering for Christ, which inverts the whole social order. Slaves would never be lifted up as a model for anything, certainly not for a master or a husband or for a wife for that matter. And the Christian gospel loves to overturn the thinking and the prejudices of the culture to make things that are not and the weak things of the world the instrument that God is pleased to use for his purpose. And the supreme example of this, of course, is the cross of Christ. He makes his son crucified for sinners, the way of salvation for everyone who believes. So here he takes the slaves, the lowest of the low, as it were, and he makes the slaves the paradigm for wives and husbands alike. That's why that word likewise is so important. And I point all that out to simply uh, to make the point that we need to take uh, some care when we read texts like this. We shouldn't assume uh, more than Peter is actually saying, and we shouldn't miss his real message because we're reading it through the lens of our contemporary cultural debates. So we need to hold our fire, so to speak. And as we kind of gear up to get mad at Peter because he says wives should be subject to their husbands, we need to take a breath and pause and not be so easily triggered by Peter's message. Instead, I want you to hear him in context, because you might discover that instead of patriarchal chauvinism, Peter offers a redemptive vision of the Christian home that we badly need to recover in a confused and chaotic cultural moment. So here in 1 Peter 3, the apostle lays out what I think are some common sense principles for us. He's addressing women uh, specifically women with unbelieving husbands. But I think the principles here can easily, uh, easily be applied to both sexes, both spouses. And so we learn first that actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. And if you have uh, the sermon outline, which you can get off of our website, that's the first blank there. Verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In our culture today, and it's been this way for a long time, many married people tend to view their roles as conditional. Their behavior depends on the behavior of their spouses. So uh, a wife might say, sure, I'll be that kind of the wife I should be if he's the kind of husband he should be. And there's lots of husbands who essentially say the same thing. And you know, on the surface, it sounds okay. It's a 50-50 deal. You'll do your part, I'll do mine. But there's a problem here. This passage isn't written just to wives who have husbands who play fair. This is written to all wives, even those who have husbands who do not obey the word. Some versions have refused to accept the good news. And so while this is written for wives whose husbands aren't followers of Christ, it's also written for wives whose husbands don't seem to care about spiritual things. 
uh, whose husbands want their own way, whose husbands aren't playing fair. In general, most wives. And what do many wives do when things aren't working out the way they want? They manipulate their husbands to try to get their own way, just as men try to manipulate their wives to try to get their own way, just as many people try to manipulate others to try to get their own way at school, at work, in the neighborhood, wherever. Now, I know that none of you would do any such thing, but many people elsewhere would do that. And to people who manipulate their spouse to get their own way, Peter says, actions speak louder than words. Now what you say is important, but your words can actually cause more problems and be more damaging if they're not backed up by your actions. People who say it but don't live it lose their credibility. And so they resort to manipulation to get their way. And this can take many forms. Pouting, sulking, scheming, bargaining, nagging, preaching, humiliating, and so on and so forth. And wives who use this strategy are not trusting God to change their husbands. And in the end, they're trusting themselves. And if you remember what we learned last week in 1 Peter 2, was you can change no one. Changing people is God's job. Your job is to love, accept, and forgive them and point them to Jesus. Marriage is a great place to start. Ruth Bell Graham, uh, when asked about her husband, Billy Graham, once said, it's my job to love Billy. It's God's job to make him good. That's probably true for every married person. It's your job to love your husband. It's your job to love your wife. It's God's job to change them and to make them good. Now, couple of caveats here. This doesn't mean that anyone has to stay in an abusive, dangerous situation. Those situations can be overcome, but it may require some distance and some help to overcome them. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating for women to stay in a dangerous situation. I'm not advocating they automatically get divorced either, and I don't think Peter is saying that. What Peter is saying is that your actions indicate who you're trusting. Are you trusting God to change him or her? Or are you trusting in yourself to change your spouse? One way works, though not necessarily according to our timetable. But the other way is a recipe for disaster. And Peter's saying something that, truth be told, every man knows. Husbands hate being preached at, pressured by, judged by or coerced by their wives. They hate it, and it will not make them change. Usually it makes things worse. It drives a wedge between them and you. Instead, Peter says, let a godly life which is matched by godly words begin to mark your lives and your husbands will begin to pay attention to what you want. Even more so, Peter says they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And that kind of godly lifestyle will have an effect on your husband or your wife. It will soften their heart and bring about an interest in the things of God. So I'm not going to spend more time on it, but I have included a two-page summary by John Piper 
on what submission is and what submission isn't. And you can go on our website, you can find it at the end of the manuscript, at the end of the sermon outline, and at the end of the community group study guide. So whichever one of those you wanna uh, look at, I've attached it to all three. Um, and uh, it will give you some more details uh, regarding that. So first common sense principle, actions speak louder than words. Second common sense principle is beauty comes from the inside out. Beauty comes from the inside out. Here's the uh, two-page summary from uh, Dr. John Piper. Verses three and four, beauty comes from the inside out. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I was thinking about this. This is another just really countercultural kind of statement. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody else noticed uh, that Christmas is coming? Does the Christmas rush start earlier every year? I saw Christmas stuff in Costco in August this year. And the message is, here's the things you've got to get this year. Now, we get some catalogs uh, in the mail and most of them go straight to recycling. But this time of year, we start getting a lot more catalogs. And we get some from companies that I've never even heard of before. And they all say the same thing. Here's the stuff you've got to get this year. And all I'm saying is it's easy to get carried away, especially in the coming uh, holiday season. But it appears they had all the same issues even back in Peter's time as well. Now, Peter is not prohibiting having an attractive hairstyle or the wearing of jewelry or having nice clothes. He's saying those things need to be put in the background and the more important character issues need to be brought to the front. Because cultures, all cultures, have a way of judging people by appearance. And here Peter is reminding us that while physical appearance is important to people, it is the inside things, he specifically says, like a gentle and quiet spirit, which are important to God. What you're like on the inside has an awful lot to do with how you're seen on the outside. We've all known gorgeous women who are considered unattractive because of their bad attitude. And we've all known women who may have been a little more plain, but were thought attractive because they had this wonderful spirit about them. What Peter is calling the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And I looked at that, I think it's very interesting that this description, beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, is not all that different than the, how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11 as gentle and lowly in heart. So actions speak louder than words. Beauty comes from the inside out. Third common sense principle is attention should be focused. Attention should be focused. Verses 5 and 6. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
and you are our children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, this is written specifically to wives, but it applies to husbands as well. Who gets your attention? Who gets most of your attention? Where do you spend your time? Who gets most of your time? What's the focus of your prayer life? Is your spouse at the top of the list? Most of you know that sometimes I have lunch with people in the church, uh, some with women, sometimes with couples, um, but that's usually not as easy to pull off. I tend to have lunch more often with, with the men. And I usually ask two questions when I meet with someone for lunch. Not always, sometimes I forget, but usually. And uh, the first one, very easily, is how are you doing? And the second one, or usually the last one, is how can I be praying for you? And usually I hear a whole lot about work and stress and money and family. And all those issues are important. But I've noticed something. When I ask those same questions of your elders, Mark and Frank and Tom and Ron, I usually hear about wives and family first. Ministry second, work third, and themselves last, if at all. Which means you have some godly elders. Actions speak louder than words. Beauty comes from the inside out. Attention should be focused. And finally, the fourth principle is we all need to have an attitude of honor. I'll spend more time on the fourth principle. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Six verses on the wives. What about the husbands? Do the husbands get off scot-free? No. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands. Again, let's stop there for a moment. Peter's addressing the heads of households, and the word likewise, remember, calls him to read everything that Peter has already said to the slaves and everything he's already said to the wives and apply it to himself as well. Which is probably why he says least of all to the husbands. It's not because there aren't any hus uh, lessons for husbands to learn. It's because he's already taught so much to the slaves and to the wives. And now he's saying, so likewise, I hope you've been paying attention because all of this has to be brought to bear on you as well. He is to live a life of humble, costly, sacrificial obedience. In particular, he is to live with his wife in an understanding way. You can see that there in verse 7. So the manner of your life, husbands, should reflect a commitment to knowing your bride well, responding to her sensitively, never simply imposing your expectations, but making allowances, sacrificing your preferences, changing your priorities because you want to show honor to the woman, as Peter puts it. There is no room here for abusive words or deeds, for controlling, manipulative, domineering behavior. Man, your whole life should be shaped by a commitment to understanding and honoring your bride. And as a result, Peter gives us three strong commands. Now, I know you're probably uh, thinking of... Um, well, the first command is you have to live with her. Again, that's one of the blanks there in your outline. You have to live with her. 
Now, you may be thinking, of course, I have to live with her. I'm married to her. That is not what Peter uh, means. It's a lot more than uh, eating at the same table and sharing the same bed and paying the same mortgage. It has the, more the meaning of a close togetherness. He's saying that husbands are responsible for a depth, depth of intimacy in this relationship. It's more a matter of sharing your thoughts, your fears, your dreams, your needs, and feeling at home with each other. Those times you spend together where you're content just being in each other's company. You know, sometimes, and it gets late, and Joanne and I are really tired, uh, we'll just sit down in the family room and watch old videos of uh, various concerts. We both like music. Uh, the other night, we watched an old video of a James Taylor concert. He's one of our favorites. Uh, we've seen him in concert several times. And we sort of end up singing the songs to each other. It's not really planned, and it's kind of corny. But, you know, we'll just be sitting there, and, and James Taylor's doing his thing, and all of a sudden you'll be like, Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you've got to do is... And you look, and she's doing the same thing, and we both start laughing. Some of you do that. But that's part of living with each other. You start doing and saying the same thing. You know, old people finish each other's sentences, that kind of thing. But even more than living with each other, you have to understand her. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way. That means you have to have a thorough understanding of how your wife is put together. And it's a whole lot more than brown hair, green eyes, like seafood, and her favorite color is blue. To know your wife means you know the answers to the most complex questions about her. What's on the inside? What fulfills her the most? What are our deepest concerns and fears? How do you help her work through them in the safety and security of your love? What does she need from you? Why does she respond the way she does? And guys, I am sorry to say there is no handbook where you can find all the answers. You have to find the answers through the process of cultivating a life together. And it takes time and it takes listening. Lots of listening. Cultivating this kind of understanding means that you have to pay attention to what she says. And most wives long for that. Some of them die longing for that. Few things give a wife more security than knowing her husband knows and understands her. That's what results in intimacy. That's what turns a honeymoon romance into a lifelong love. And that's what keeps her wanting to be with you. And last, Peter says, you have to honor her. You have to live with her. You have to understand her. You have to honor her. To honor your wife is to give her a place of honor in your life. Peter says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, so far, so good. Now we've gotten to the next controversial verse. What about that pesky phrase, as the weaker vessel? We all sort of wince a little bit when we read it. Show them honor as the weaker vessel. There are a lot of ways in which my wife is a far stronger person than I am, and I praise God for that. So what does Peter mean when he calls her the weaker vessel? 
I think this is one place where the Bible is at odds with the prevailing opinion in our culture right now. We're told that maleness and femaleness are merely gender constructs that are imposed upon us, that biological sex and a person's gender do not necessarily have anything to do with one another, that a person's gender can be fluid and plastic and changeable. So a person who's born male can become female or something in between or neither, should they so choose. That is not the teaching of the scriptures. This idea that men and women are fundamentally, essentially, and necessarily uh, different, our culture thinks that's just plain wrong. But you cannot read Genesis 1 through 3 without getting that message. The received wisdom of our culture is the differences are not fundamental or essential, and they're changeable. But in reality, it just doesn't work. One of the easiest ways I know to demonstrate that is talk for a moment about transgenderism and sports. Recently read an article, as actually happened a number of years ago, but I just recently read it, about Martina Navratilova. She's a former tennis champion, great athlete, and she is a gay person herself. And she got in all kinds of trouble because she said that transgendered women should not have automatic rights to compete in women's sports. She said, I'm quoting, they have an unfair advantage. The article went on with remarkable candor to say, the International Olympic Committee allows trans women to compete if they've been reducing their testosterone for 12 months. But increasingly, female athletes are saying that testosterone is not the only advantage. Boys start growing bigger bones, bigger muscles, and greater heart capacity from puberty, and no gender switch will undo that. The fact is that physiologically, men and women are not the same. Much as our culture may wish it, uh, that it was not so, it is so. So that's the first caveat there to the weaker vessel. The second is we need to face the fact that despite what our culture says, the reality today is that women continue to be preyed upon and abused and oppressed. And the fact that we often struggle with Peter's words in this text is testimony to our awareness of the vulnerabilities of women in our society still. And to be honest, I think it's worse than ever. And we're uncomfortable with anything that might seem to lend weight uh, to something that would support abusive behavior. We all intuitively know, in other words, that women, physically at least, are the weaker vessel. That ought not to offend us. It should rather remold, rewire, reconfigure how men think about women, not as objects to be desired or to be used, not as simply interchangeable with men, but as human beings with dignity and value to be cherished and protected and defended. They are, Peter says, heirs with you of the grace of life. Men, if you have a Christian wife, ladies, if you have a Christian husband, you're going to spend eternity together. You are joint heirs of the grace of life. Your bonds are far deeper and far stronger than mere romance or anything signaled by wearing a ring on the third finger of your left hand. Your bonds will last forever. So it's time to roll up our sleeves and recommit to our marriages because they're one of God's means for preparing you both for the life to come.
Now with that out of the way, let's get back to the main point here, which is honor. The word honor used here is the same root word used in 1 Peter 1.19, which is translated there as precious. As in, that verse says, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now that's quite an analogy. The honor you give your wife is to be at the same level of honor and respect as the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. Perhaps that's why the Apostle Peter says in Ephesians 5, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's real honor. To treat your wife as Christ treats his bride, which is the church. So men, does your wife have the place of honor in your life? Let me address singles for a bit here because you're going to get all these questions and you need to be preparing now for them. So the question is, does your wife have the place of honor in your life? Is she the top priority in all your relationships? Is she the top priority in your heart? And does she know it? If you're not sure that she knows it, how are you going to make sure that she knows it without any doubts? The Bible is clear here. You have to honor your wife. Peter finishes with this gem, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The New Living Translation has that as, if you don't treat her as you should, your prayers will not be heard. I hate that verse. <coughs> but it's true. It's not a threat. It is a reminder about consequences. For those of you who are married, think back to the last fight you had with your spouse. Some of you are looking at your watch. Dave, that was on the way over here about two hours ago. Seriously, think back to that last fight. As soon as you stopped arguing, as soon as it was over, how many of you were able to pray? How many wanted to pray? When things aren't right between you and your spouse, your prayer life's terrible. You have a right attitude, you treat each other right, and nothing hinders your prayers. You see, marriage is like a metaphor or a picture or a parable that stands for something far more than a man and a woman becoming one flesh. It stands for the relationship between Christ and the church. Ultimately, that's the deepest meaning of marriage. It is meant to be a living drama of how Christ and the church relate to each other. And because marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, your relationship with your spouse is dramatically affected by your relationship with Christ. And likewise, it dramatically uh, affects your relationship. Your marriage dramatically affects your relationship with Christ. The two are inseparably linked. So let me summarize what Peter has said. Wives, your quiet actions, your inner beauty, and close attention are crucial to making your marriage work. Husbands, living with her, knowing her well, and honoring her often are critical in making your marriage work. Marriage has never been a 50-50 deal. 
It takes 100% from both sides to make it work. Because a good marriage isn't so much about finding the right person as it is about being the right person. And that starts with you. Tom prayed earlier for all the people who went through the hurricane this week. And uh, I had the privilege of speaking with Todd and Sandy Trailer. Some of you will remember them. Todd was a ruling elder here for many years. And they retired about eight years ago to Naples, Florida, which got really hammered uh, by the hurricane. And uh, so I texted them to find out how they had fared uh, with the hurricane. Well, they had evacuated to their son's home in Buffalo, New York, so they're fine. And they have learned that their home came through just fine as well, and they plan to return home as soon as the power gets restored. But we had a long conversation, and since they retired, Todd had another heart attack in May of 2020, and he had another open heart surgery. So the count is up to four bypasses and five stents. As a heart attack survivor myself, I understand how serious that is. Meanwhile, Sandy has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and it's slowly progressing. So they've had to face some tough times, but you would never know it talking to them. They have made a very intentional decision to enjoy life as much as they can and to do it together for as long as they can. And I'm glad to report, despite the very serious health issues, they are well. And that's a model for us on how to make marriage work. They are a model for putting each other first. They are a model in how they honor each other. I call Todd, he tells me about Sandy. I talk to Sandy, she tells me about Todd. Eventually I hear what's going on with both of them. But they're a model also for trusting Christ for their marriage and for each other. They're a model for putting Jesus at the center of their relationship. And people with those kind of marriages, marriages that model how Christ loves the church, well, that should be honored by all of us. Think about that, you need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to see how you want to order our most important relationships. Sometimes we still act as people who think marriage is too hard. And yet you promise to present the church to yourself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Lord, we can't even imagine what it might look or feel like to be holy and without blemish. So help us to honor one another so that we might get a taste of that future grace. And as always, work in each of our hearts this fall. As we learn from the Apostle Peter to embrace our status as exiles, as strangers in a strange land, as those who exhibit 
a gentle and quiet spirit. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one who describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart, that we might follow in his steps. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.